We're going to be in Numbers chapter 22 as we're continuing through the Bible, continuing through the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 22. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of fellowship, the gift of being able to be together. And we thank you that you are sovereign, that you're powerful, that you have the ability to take cursing and turn it into blessing. We thank you for your word that reminds us of the severity of sin. May we heed the warning tonight of sin. And Jesus, we look to you and ask that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers chapter 22 introduces us to an interesting character by the man named Balaam. There's really a lot written about Balaam in the scriptures. He's mentioned in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nehemiah, Micah, Peter, Jude, and Revelation. To put this into perspective, there's more written about Balaam than there is about Mary, the mother of Jesus. But with all of this in scripture about Balaam, there's still a bit of mystery about this guy. Who who is he uh, exactly? The context is the children of Israel are traveling in the wilderness and the Moabites come against the nation of Israel and they want to hire Balaam to curse the children of Israel. God appears to Balaam and says, no, that's not going to, to happen and takes the cursing and turns it into a blessing. But as we'll get to chapter 25, we'll see that Balaam really sneaks in the back door. Though he can't curse the children of Israel, he gives counsel saying, if you send uh, your women in to the men of the children of Israel, they'll fall into sexual sin and idolatry, and that will bring destruction to uh, God's people. I want to read a few sections of scripture about Balaam in the New Testament. This is 2 Peter 2, verse 15. It says, they've forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So scripture says he he loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude, verse 11 says, woe to them, for they have gone to the way of Cain and have run greedily into the heir of Balaam for profit. So again, this, this love of money. And Revelations 2, verse 14 says, but I have a few things against you because You have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and commit sexual immorality. So Balaam did instruct Balak on how to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So the big message for tonight is God's able to take cursing and turn it into blessing. God is bigger than this cursing that Balaam's trying to bring, but then also we have this warning with sin, and especially sexual sin. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of Jordan across from Jericho. They're traveling to the promised land. It's their years of wandering in the wilderness. Now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Fear makes us do strange things, as we've seen this last year and a half, haven't we? Fear is a terrible motivator. 
Fear gets a hold of the Moabites. They're afraid of the Israelites. They look at the Israelites and it's a huge multitude. We know a, a multitude over a million easily from the censuses that are recorded in the book of Numbers. And they're afraid that they're going to be wiped out by the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at the time. So Balak is the king of Moab. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his men, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth. And settling next to me, therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. So Balaam has this reputation of a lot of credibility. It seems that he's some type of witch doctor or divineer, as we'll see from the next verse. And whoever Balaam would curse would be cursed, and, and whoever was blessed by Balaam would be blessed. It's amazing to me the amount of credibility that Balak will put in one man, Balaam, but we shouldn't be surprised. We still put a lot of credibility in the words of man, don't we? We look to people, and if someone says something, someone like Balaam who's got a reputation, then we can tend to go forward with it lock, stock, and barrel, but we can put very little credibility, unfortunately, into God's word. So here we are elevating the word of man and we're diminishing the word of God. So what if Balaam curses? So what if Balaam blesses? He's simply a man. But Balak, as this unbelieving king, he puts a lot of credibility in Balaam. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian depart with the divineer's fee in their hand. So, so they're ready to pay the divineer's fee. They're gonna pay Balaam. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Verse eight, and he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. So Balaam says, give me an evening. I'll see if God speaks to me on this. And interestingly enough, God does speak to Balaam. Then God said to Balaam, who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them, nor shall you, you shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So God speaks specifically to Balaam and says, no. No, you're, you're not to curse them for they're a blessed people, they're my people. Verse 13, so Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So Balaam says, nope, I, I can't go with you to do this. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus said Balak, the son of Zippor, 
Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly and will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. Trying to convince Balaam with money and prestige. If you come and curse the children of Israel, there's going to be a lot of money in there for you. There's going to be a lot of prestige that's there for you. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now this sounds really good. This sounds like Balaam is passing the test. But we'll see from chapter 25 that Balaam does succumb and gives this counsel to destroy the children of Israel these other sections of scripture in the New Testament that point out that Balaam loved the money of unrighteousness is Balaam is saying this, hey, even if you gave me a million dollars, wink, 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 I wouldn't do it. Sure sounds like a good idea for you to give me a million dollars, wink, 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 right? He's planting this hint in their minds of, well, maybe if you just offered me more money, then I would come and and curse the children of Israel. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. In verse 20, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the words which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab gives permission for Balaam to go, but he's only to speak what the Lord puts in his mouth. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Well, why does God get angry if God gave him permission to go? This is what I believe, is that God knew that Balaam's heart wasn't right. Balaam, even though he had permission to go, he wasn't at this place where he was submitted to only speak what God had put into his mouth. God sees the heart of Balaam and he opposes Balaam. The angel of the Lord is standing in front of Balaam, the donkey, and his two servants. We don't want God to be in an adversarial position towards us. Agreed? That's a very disadvantageous position for us to be in. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we're walking in pride, God in his love takes this adversarial position. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. Angel of the Lord's on the offensive. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. The donkey sees what the prophet misses. (laughs) And sometimes we're so certain that we see things clearly, that we see the Lord clearly, that we see things around us clearly. Yet God's trying to speak to us through a donkey. And you may look at your boss, your spouse, your kids as this annoying donkey that just seems to be going off the path. And yet the whole time, we're the ones missing it. Balaam's the one missing it. The donkey has it right here. 
And the donkey gets a a beating for going off into the field. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with the wall on this side and a wall on that side. So the angel of the Lord takes a strategic position in a narrow place. And when the donkey saw that the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. So this time, Balaam gets hurt and takes it out on the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. At this point, the donkey's got to be getting nervous and anxious, like, what is, what is going on here? We know throughout Scripture the kind of reaction that people have to the angel of the Lord, let alone a donkey, Right? And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck struck the donkey with his staff. Gets more interesting in verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? (laughs) I hope that God doesn't open up the mouth of my dog. Right? (laughs) Wouldn't that freak you out if all of a sudden your, your dog starts talking to you? Some of you may have chickens and raise chickens. You go out to get your eggs and they're talking to you, right? God opens the mouth of this, this donkey and the donkey's saying, what did I do? Why is it that you have beat me these three times? So if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you and me, Right? A lot of times we get nervous about speaking up for the things of God and sharing truth and love and going, I don't know if God can use me. And yeah, God can use a donkey. He he can use you. He can use me. Verse 29, And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. What's even more hilarious is the fact that Balaam talks back to the donkey. He doesn't even stop to realize, man, my donkey just talked to me. He just carries on a conversation like it were his spouse or or his buddy at work. And and this shows how anger just gets us out of our right mind. If he's in his right mind, he's going, wait a second, my donkey just talked to me. But instead he's like, you know, if I had a sword, I'd kill you right now. That's his message to his, his donkey. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. Donkey's like, I've always been a good donkey, right? Isn't that true? Have I ever been disposed to act this way? And Balaam says, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. It's good to stop and pause in those times in life where it just seems like we're beating our head against the wall to stop and go, what am I missing? Am I missing something here? It could just be a difficult season and that's the way that it's going to be. But it could be that I'm missing something. That God would want to open my eyes. People around me are seeing it. A donkey can see it, but, but I can't see it. And God would open our eyes and Balaam's eyes are open to the angel of the Lord and he's humbled and he falls upon his face. 
And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Once again, God's seeing the heart of Balaam, his greedy heart, his intention to curse the children of Israel. Then the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she'd not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. The donkey saved Balaam's life. You gotta ask yourself, who's the real donkey in this story? Sure seems like it's Balaam, right? So somebody that we could be really upset with, that we're convinced is wrong, that we're convinced is a donkey, might actually be saving our life. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went out, with the princes of Balak. So Balaam gets it straight. He's only gonna speak what the Lord allows him to speak. Now when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border at the Aran, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to you calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kirjoth-Huzoth. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. And verse 41 gives us Balaam's first prophecy. And there's several prophecies that Balaam's gonna give. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. And from there, he might observe the extent of the people. So the worship of Baal, the false god, is taking place on the high places. We see this throughout the Old Testament that there would be idolatry in the high places. Have you found that a lot of times the mountainous high places are still communities of idolatry? Is Manitou Springs pretty funky spiritually? Is there some Baal worship pretty much going on in Manitou? Absolutely. When I was in Peru almost two years ago to visit Annie and Darwin, it's beautiful high mountains there. And with it, It's connected a whole lot of really messed up worship and worship of false gods and idols. And I I don't know why throughout scripture and currently that the high, beautiful places are mixed with idolatry, but we do still see that today. But we know the one true living God. We can enjoy the mountains and worship our father, amen? And not be succumbed to idolatry. So here's the first prophecy in Chapter 23, then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. 
So he went to a desolate height, and God met Balaam, and he said to him, I've prepared the seven altars, and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. So God meets Balaam and speaks through Balaam. Then God put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. And he took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. And shall I curse whom God has not cursed, and how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And once again, we look at the amount of persecution that comes upon the nation of Israel and the pressure that there is to curse the nation of Israel, to try to deny their right to exist as a nation and a people group. And this goes all the way back. Even at this point in in the Old Testament, there's been that attack upon God's people. And Balaam says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to curse those that God has not denounced. Verse 9, for from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him, there a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. God's able to take a cursing and turn it into a blessing. Verse 12, so he answered and said, must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? So we get the second prophecy of Balaam. Then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them, so they're up looking down on the nation of Israel, the outer part, and you shall see them, curse them for me there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pishgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he came to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering. And the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? So he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken? And will he not make it good? This is true about the Lord. God's not a man. God's not a person. He doesn't lie. He's not fickle. He's not subject to change. He doesn't repent, meaning he doesn't change his mind. And what he says comes true. He's going to be good for his word. He's going to be faithful to, to his word. In a changing world with lots of uncertainty, isn't it wonderful to know that God's an unchanging refuge? He is committed to his promises and committed to his word. In verse 20, behold, I have received a command to bless. 
He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox for there is no sorcery against Jacob nor any divination against Israel. It must not be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what God has done. Balaam's saying, my sorcery, my divination doesn't work against the nation of Israel. Look, a people rise like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. So Balaam's like, just don't say anything at all. Every time you open your mouth, you're messing this all up and a blessing comes out. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, did I not tell you saying all that the Lord speaks that I must do? What's so interesting about Balaam is he's passing with flying colors at this point from an outward appearance. He's saying the right thing, but his heart is wrong. His heart is for greed. His heart is for money of unrighteousness, and that's going to come out eventually. So we need to be careful. Just because someone's saying the right thing, it doesn't mean necessarily that their heart is right. And sometimes when we're saying the right thing, it doesn't mean our heart is right. We can be saying, oh, I'm committed to God. I'm committed to God's word. I, I can only say what he puts into my mouth, but, but we know in our hearts that our hearts are far from the Lord. Verse 27, then Balak said to Balaam, please come and I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. Third time's a charm. <laughs> Balak is determined, isn't he? He's like, well, maybe this third time will result in a cursing from Balaam. So Balaam, so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. A lot of barbecue going on in all this. A lot of slain lambs and rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face towards the wilderness and Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes and the spirit of God came upon him. So he's looking down on the children of Israel and the spirit of God comes and speaks. Then he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees visions of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. Balak's got to be hating this. <laughs> this blessing is being pronounced uh, upon Israel. Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. 
He shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. He who bows down, he who lies down like a lion, and as a lion, he who shall rouse him. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. This is what God spoke to Abraham as well. The same promise. Those will be blessed who bless you and and cursed who curse you and your descendants. One of the reasons that I think God has blessed the United States of America historically has been because we've blessed the nation of Israel. It's a big deal if we stop supporting and blessing the, the nation of Israel because God in his word says, if you bless my people, you'll be blessed. But if you curse the nation of Israel, you will be cursed. It's more than a political position. We're putting ourselves in an adversarial position uh, before the Lord. When we look at the nation of Israel, we see a testimony of God's grace. Because as we've been studying them through this wilderness wandering, are they perfect? Absolutely not. They're flawed and sinful just like us. Through the times of the kings and the chronicles, they grow into gross idolatry. When God sends his own son, they have Christ crucified. The scribes and the Pharisees are are jealous of, of Jesus But yet God continues to love the nation of Israel. To this day, Israel primarily is atheist, have rejected the existence of God altogether. The the Orthodox Jews, they reject the Messiah outright. Largely are unbelievers. There's a small remnant of Israelites that are saved that know Christ's their Savior, but God hasn't given up on the nation of Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 Romans is this beautiful book of God's grace. Paul doesn't go off topic to focus on Israel for three chapters. He's on topic of God's grace, saying God's going to be faithful to the nation of Israel. If God rejects the nation of Israel, what hope is there for us as Gentile believers? We've been grafted in. To where in the book of Revelation, we see God working in the nation of Israel where there's 12,000 from each tribe, resulting in 144,000 that are in love with God, declaring the message of God. When Christ returns, the nation of Israel, as prophesied in the book of Zechariah, looks at Jesus who has his wounds and says, where did you receive those wounds? Maintains his wounds in his glorified body. And Jesus said, in the house of my friends, And it's at that moment as a nation that they really come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, is everything that Israel does currently, is it right? Is it righteous? No, not necessarily. But does that mean that God has rejected the the nation of Israel? No. God is going to be faithful to his people. We're to be praying for the peace of, of Jerusalem. As you study prophecy and end-time events, keep your eye on Israel. That's where these things are going to be fulfilled. That's where Christ is going to return on the Mount of Olives. Once again, is it coincidence that it's not politically correct to bless the nation of Israel? No, it's a spiritual issue. Why has the enemy always wanted to try to destroy Israel? Because if Israel is wiped out, the Bible can't be fulfilled. If Israel's wiped out before Christ came, Scripture could not be fulfilled. If Israel is wiped out before 
the second coming of Christ, then the book of Revelation can't be fulfilled. What if the nation of Israel is wiped out and there's no 144,000? But I gotta tell you, Israel's not gonna be wiped out. So God will bless those who bless Israel and he'll, he'll curse those who, who curse Israel. In verse 10, then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. <laughs> Balak's like, oh, you really missed out on my honor. God has held you back from being able to receive honor from me. Well, there is honor that comes from the world by rejecting God, but it's not an honor that we want, amen? And unbelievers might come and say, hey, if you reject the Lord, then I'll give you honor, I'll give you money, I'll give you position, but if you keep being sold out to Jesus, it's gonna hinder your career, it's gonna hold you back, you're not gonna be able to go as far in the company and make as much money. Well, you can keep your money. I'd rather have peace with God than peace with men. Balak can keep his, his honor. So Balaam said to Balak, did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, if Balaam were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. And we'll find out that Balaam really didn't mean that. And now indeed, I'm going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in latter days. So we get a fourth prophecy. Balaam gives it one more try. So he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of the Lord and has knowledge of the Most High, who sees visions of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes wide open. I see him, but now I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all of the sons of Tumult. A, a prophecy towards Jesus, a, a prophecy of the second coming of, of Christ. And Edom shall be his possession, Seir also his enemies shall be his possession, while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Then he looked on Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. So prophesying future victories for the nation of Israel. Then he looked on the Kenites and he took up his oracle and said, firm is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. And how long until Asher carries you away captive? Then he took up his oracle and said, alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber. Not Uber, but Eber. And so shall Amlek until he perishes. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. Seems great, doesn't it? Seems like Balaam's not, not that bad of a guy. He's always committed to the word of the Lord. 
So how do we get all of those New Testament references to his character and nature? We gotta look at chapter 25. This is where everything comes down. Now Israel remains in the acacia grove and the people began to commit harlotry, sexual immorality, sexual sin, fornication, adultery with the women of Moab. Notice where this leads. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Couldn't get Balaam to curse the children of Israel. The key to understanding this text is Numbers 31, verse 16. I want you to turn there, same book of the Bible, Numbers 31, verse 16, because the Bible tells us what happened here. How did the Israelites get involved in sexual sin and idolatry? It was through the counsel of Balaam. This is Numbers 31, verse 16. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So we put the pieces together of 2 Peter, of Jude, of Revelation chapter 2, of Numbers 31, and Balaam starts to go, you know what? They were promising me a whole lot of money. I walked away from a lot of cha-ching right there. And even though he had the revelation of the angel of the Lord, even though God had moved in his life in such a powerful way, Balaam knew this wasn't him. He knew that this was the Lord. God spoke to him. God put these words in his mouth. The, the spirit of God was upon him. But in that moment, that Wages of right, unrighteousness meant more to him than the revelation of God or God using his life. He must have gone back to Balak and said, okay, you want to destroy the Israelites? This is how you do it. Send in your, your women. The men won't be able to stand in sexual integrity. That's going to then lead to idolatry and God's going to judge the children of Israel. You're going to be able to destroy them from within. External adversaries against God's people, God will handle. Amen? Well, when people come against God's church, God's going to defend his church. He's going to defend his bride. But ultimately, what's going to be our demise? What's going to be our destruction? Sexual sin and idolatry. What continues to plague the people of God is sexual sin, where we're compromising. And that leads to idolatry. This is the same thing that took place in Solomon's life, sexual sin with women from all of these different nations, and his heart was turned away to these foreign gods. The two are linked together, idolatry and sexual sin. And many times, we make sexual sin an idol in our lives. It becomes more important to us than our worship of God. And the worship of Baal was grossly connected with sexual sin. 
As they would worship Baal, they would engage in sexual sin. It's interesting sometimes as we go through the scriptures how God has a message lined up for us as a church because on Sunday we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4 where God declares to us that his will for us is to walk in sexual integrity, to know how to possess our vessels for honor and for sanctification. Then here on Wednesday night, we're dealing with sexual sin. And I hate to disappoint you, but we don't sit down and have a master plan. <laughs> like on Wednesday nights, we're teaching through the Bible, and this is where God has us, right? We're going through First Thessalonians. This, this is where God has us. So we go, okay, Lord, you've got a message for us. Lord, Lord you're speaking to us in this way of, of sexual sin. We go on in the text and we see the way God addresses this sexual sin and idolatry. Then the Lord said to Moses, take all of the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from from Israel. Who did God go after first? The leaders. The leaders are engaged in sexual sin. They knew better. They should have been standing up for righteousness and God says go Go hang the leaders that are involved in sexual sin. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. So if those that are joined in idolatry, go find them and, and kill them. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. So in the midst of God judging the leaders and also those who are engaged in worship of Baal, that's happening. Somebody has the boldness to go bring in a Midianite woman and start to pursue her in a sexual way right outside the tabernacle. I mean, this, this is happening right outside of, of the Holy of Holies. And the priest, Phineas, the son of Aaron, he sees this and he goes and gets his javelin and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. And the man of Israel and the woman threw her body, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. He takes drastic action against sexual sin. God's putting this plague upon Israel for their idolatry and sexual sin, and, and Phineas stands up, and he says, this is enough. This is enough. Now, we know in the New Testament, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You don't go out and you know, kill somebody if they're in sexual sin. I hope you, you understand that. But the message is clear to us that we're to take drastic action towards sin in our lives because sexual sin brings destruction. We have to understand that we have a loving father that wants what's best for us. He designed sex. Sex is a good thing. The marriage bed is honorable between a husband and a wife and, and a man and a woman. But outside of that, it brings destruction in our lives. God, God's communicating, look, this sexual sin and idolatry has to stop because it's destroying you. In Proverbs 6, verse 25, it says, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, 
nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by the means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Reduced to a very crust of bread, and the sexual sin is, is preying upon his life. Why does Satan use this so much against God's people? Because Satan knows the destruction that it brings. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? Try that out. See how it goes. Years ago, our family was at the Oregon coast. My brother and his wife and my, my parents and Amber and I and Hannah and Addie and Eileen Wyatt weren't born yet and had a Weber barbecue on the deck of this rental house, this beach v VRBO. As you probably are aware, in Oregon, the wind can just pick up and, and blow hard and hot coals on the Weber barbecue and blows over. It's a wood deck and this charcoal starts to burn the deck. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to save the day. I'm barefoot. And before you know it, I've stepped on hot coals. Let me tell you, it has impact, right? Man, that hurt. And right away, there was these blisters on my feet. And sometimes we think, well, we can engage in sexual sin, and it's not going to result in any problems. Well, what's the big deal? Some would look at pornography and say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. This this is private, or, well, we love each other. So even though it's outside of God's design, of God saying this is loving, this is what's gonna be edifying, well, we love each other. There's gonna be no negative consequence. But the scripture says, man, how can you step on hot coals and not be burned? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy him when he's starving. Yet when he's found, he must restore sevenfold. He may give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. <laughs> it, it destroys our soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. Why does God take such a strong stand against sexual sin? Because he knows that it brings destruction. Verse nine, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I will give him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. God uses one person that stands up for righteousness. We're living in this world of sexual sin. Sometimes we're looking around and we're seeing the people of God engaged in, in sexual sin. Sometimes when it comes to sexual purity and sexual integrity, some may say, well, what's even the point? There's no way to be able to have victory, but that's not the way that Phineas thought. So I'm gonna take a stand. It reminds me of Joshua that says, as for me and my house, 
we're going to serve the Lord. Stand up in this area of sexual integrity through the power of God's might, through what Jesus has done for us in humility, but not backing away from the truth. And, and God can do a great work through one person that will stand up from right, for righteousness. Now the man of the Israelites who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of his father's house among the Simeonites. So Zimri was a leader. How many leaders have fallen to, to sexual sin, believers and unbelievers alike? And Zimri, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, his name means remember him. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. He was head of the people of the father's house of Midian. So the Midianite woman, Cosby, her name means deception in Hebrew. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and attack them for they've harassed you with their schemes by which they reduced you in the matter of Peor in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, the sister who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. It's time to go on the offensive. The Midianites knew what they were doing in this plot that they cooked up with, with Balaam. And God would want us to go on the offensive in areas where the enemy is having victory in our lives and see to God win back those victories. God's able to protect his people. He's able to take a cursing and turn it into a blessing. If you've had somebody come against you and try to say things that are untrue and false accusations and in a sense go around sharing cursing, maybe you're going through that currently, Put yourself under God's wing. Put yourself under God's umbrella. Draw near to him. Walk in faithfulness. Walk in integrity. He's able to handle it. He's able to take a cursing and turn it into a blessing. Where we need to be much more concerned is keeping on guard when it comes to, to sexual sin. Sin and sexual sin especially brings us to the foot of the cross. If this is a difficult message because it, it brings up past compromise in your life in this area, remember you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to die for our sin, sexual sin included. And you're not defined by your sexual sin. You're defined by God's grace in your life. Old things have passed away and you're a new creation in Christ. If you find yourself in that place of compromise this evening, God wanted you here. He wanted you listening online and to respond to God's message. Don't believe the lies that God doesn't forgive. Don't believe the lies that God doesn't have the power to be able to change and transform your life. Great freedom comes in repentance turning away from sin and crying out to Jesus as we take communion tonight, Lord, I, I'm in this place of sexual sin. And like Phineas, take decisive action. Say, all right, the relationship has to end. The pornography has to stop this evening. For some, maybe it's in the heart. God sees our hearts. It's not in the actions yet, but it's in the heart. There's sexual sin in our hearts. And the Lord's saying, hey, that needs to be repented of and 
to confess before the Lord and receive forgiveness. God never designed for us to be able to fight this alone. God writes to Timothy through Paul. He says, Timothy, I want you to flee youthful lusts and follow after faith and a list of these amazing virtues. But then it goes on to say, with those who call upon the name of the Lord. So we're fleeing sexual sin and we're following Jesus with others. So tonight, if you find yourself in that place of compromise, as we have a time of prayer, ladies, come talk with ladies and say, hey, this is where I'm at, would you pray with me? Men, come talk with men and say, this is where I'm at, would, would, you, would you pray with me? Church office is open Tuesday through Friday. Pastors are available before and after services. Call the, the church offices and say, this is the reality of what's going on in my, my life. I was at Wednesday night service, listening to it online, and God convicted my heart. I need someone to, to walk with me through this. Some of you already have brothers and sisters in Christ in place in your life, ready for you to be able to open up with. But a lot of times there's so much guilt, there's so much shame, we wanna keep it to ourselves, and victory's not gonna be found there. When we keep it in the dark, it gets darker. But when we bring it into the light of God's love, when we bring it into the light of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, then God is able to, to set us free. The enemy would not want us to know this, but there is power in Christ to be able to walk in sexual integrity. There is power in Christ to, to be able to do it God's way. We're not destined to have to list, look at pornography. I was at a coffee shop this morning doing some studying and a young man walks in in his early 20s and he's got the skull on his shirt. And then the title of his shirt says, Porn Kills. He understood it. He understood the, the destruction that pornography brings into people's lives. And we're not destined to that. We don't have to be slaves to pornography. We don't have to be slaves to to sexual sin or any type of sin, but Satan would want to say there's no way out. But through Christ, he's the way, and he has provided the way. As we draw near to the Lord in brokenness, he's able to, to set us free. But don't continue. May we not continue down that path. Let the Lord lift off that weight of sin, bring forgiveness, to bring restoration to allow us to be trophies of of his grace parents may we be prayerful and vigilant in sharing with our kids god's design for sexuality i don't know if you guys have noticed but disney does not share god's design for sexuality disney has these short films that are so fun to watch and just recently they put one out on disney plus that was totally promoting a homosexual relationship they're targeting six-year-old kids, seven-year-old kids, eight-year-old kids to get their message that this is the right way for sex to be a man with a man. And, and God's design is, no, it's not a man with a man or a woman with a woman. It's a woman to be with a man inside of the commitment of marriage, a man to be with a woman inside of the, the commitment of marriage. These are hard discussions to be able to have, but, but we've got to share with them what God's design is. We've got to share with them what, what the truth is so when they 
see the lie and are exposed to the lie that they see it for what it is. Man, isn't heaven going to be great? We don't have to deal with this anymore. That the only thing that will be streaming is God's presence. It's going to be wonderful. But until then, press into the Lord. We don't have a lot of time here. We don't have a lot of time here on this, this earth. We don't want to spend our time in sexual sin and idolatry. Life is hard enough without sexual sin. There's enough challenges in life, but then when we throw sexual sin into the mix, man, it just gets so much harder. And God has something different for us, a a life of freedom as we focus on Christ. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice upon the cross. And our sin brings us to that place of our need for you, Jesus, to die for us and rise again, to forgive us from sin, and also to set us free from the power of sin. Lord, you know us. You know our lives. You know our secrets, quote unquote. And Lord, we want to walk in brokenness and transparency before you. Being fully in love with you, guarded and protected from sexual sin and idolatry. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.